Welcome, Auto War listeners. I'm Captain Jake Moraldi. Today we're talking autonomous systems with August Cole, the author of Ghost Fleet. We'll talk about the advent of autonomous systems on the conventional battlefield, in the cyber arena, as well as in terms of planning and decision-making. The views expressed in this podcast are those of their respective participants and do not constitute the position of the United States government. If you're listening to this podcast on iTunes or Stitcher, take a minute to go over to the Modern War Institute website and check out the new design at mwy.usma.edu. I want to start off right up front with just sort of some, some definitional questions. I know for me, when the idea of doing a podcast on autonomous weapon systems was, was broached, was pitched to me, I had the impression that I think a lot of people tend to have, which is I thought of, you know, Terminator or the Sentinel robots from the Matrix. Um, and I'm, and I want to get a feel for what, when we're talking about autonomy in a real world context, what that means. Sure. uh, One of the challenges in understanding autonomy is that it doesn't really have a crystal clear definition. I think it means different things to different people in the same way that uh, current buzzwords like innovation or disruption do. I sort of see it in context. Uh, I think when you look at autonomy and its definition in the context of uh, understanding it, it's almost easier actually to start to, to kind of comprehend how can be impactful in a technological sense, but also in a, in a social sense, because ultimately, uh, you know, any machine is a product of its of its human uh, creator, at least for, for now, uh, until machines start designing machines further. In the context of the third offset strategy that the Department of Defense is pursuing, autonomy is a really important uh, I think thread to pull, because it really gets at the very basic challenge of how do you help uh, machines aid humans in this 21st century battle space that is going to be hyper lethal. Uh, it is going to have analytical and uh, tactical and even strategic requirements in terms of cognitive process that are, that are just going to totally outstrip what we're able to do. Uh, today, I think you see some early examples of autonomy uh, in cyber domain where you have uh, real profound questions about allowing computer programs to essentially uh, operate without in a defensive sense, I mean, uh, operate without without kind of human intervention because the speed of an attack is so fast. So let's say that translates into the way you defend a ship or, uh, you know, an island in the Pacific. You know, some of these capabilities obviously exist at a, at, at a fundamental level today. You know, an Aegis system, for example, has a fair degree of what we consider autonomy. Mm. But we, we haven't really gotten to that terminator level of, of autonomy. Understanding autonomy is, a, is really challenging as well because we often see it through the art that has been put out there, right. uh, whether it's graphic novels or comic books or, or films like the Terminator. When, you know, you have a conversation even in, in, with a Defense Department official, you know, Terminator comes up, whether it's an accurate portrayal of what autonomy might be like or not. Right. Uh, it is certainly a definitional uh, kind of touchstone. And so I would argue that it's really helpful, actually, to have from the creative world these sorts of touchstones that either help us understand, describe build worlds that we want to go towards or that we want to run away from as fast as we can. And I think the Skynet outcome is one that obviously has a lot of people trying to figure out how to avoid 
you know, the machine that kind of makes this meta judgment that, that mankind is a, is an existential risk yeah. to its own existence. Well, I think, I think you brought up a fascinating thing. I, in my mind, as an infantryman, when you think of an autonomous weapon system or, or something autonomous that's being used for defense, do you think very much in the way of, you know, a, a soldier replacement or a soldier proxy? But I think it was fascinating that you highlighted the, the cyber, the, the defensive cyber actions that happen basically without human interaction. We set them up. They just run as being something that is already happening and is autonomous and we are using on a daily basis already. You know, one of the really core elements of, of uh, autonomy is the ability to perceive it. Uh, if you get picked up by an Uber without a human behind the wheel, you will experience autonomy firsthand in a very profound way. Mm-hmm. Yet all of us in the way, you know, we use, uh, let's say, consumer credit or you know, the way our retirement funds are managed. There's a heck of a lot of autonomous software already running in the background, mm-hmm. you know, in our contemporary lives, whether it's, uh, you know, essentially hedging risk in the consumer credit world or assigning, you know, uh, the ability to, to borrow money or not, you know, to folks, uh, whether it is, you know, a hedge fund that is uh, essentially, you know, in a high-frequency trading context or machine al- or algorithmic trading, you know, operating without human intervention. You know, we've seen the peril of that, of course, you know, the flash crashes in the last couple of years that, that, that flare up, whether it's a, a headline that's erroneous or whether it's an actual glitch or a hack. Right. Um, so we're starting to kind of understand these things in a different way that are not abstract because they start to impact how safe we feel on the road, whether we can participate in the economy individually, whether we see new risks emerging uh, that where there weren't any before. So in a... I guess I'll start in a more conventional sense again, because that's the easiest for me to wrap my head around. In a more conventional sense, how does how would autonomy be used in weapons of the future or or currently? The the military usage of autonomy is going to go in a few different directions. I think there's the hardware side of it, there's the software side of it, and then again there's the kind of analytics uh, side of it. And to start with the hardware, I think one of the really big challenges is to figure out how comfortable are we with a machine carrying out functions that we typically would have trusted a trained soldier to do from mm. a, from a Western military perspective? You know, that could be something that's bipedal, you know, and, and kind of lags along behind uh, uh, an infantry platoon or goes ahead in it or, or into a building. It could be um, something that, you know, flies overhead uh, of a armor formation to, you know, essentially shoot down enemy artillery or, you know, uh, in, a, in a kind of offensive sense, augment or target. You know, in the side Software side, again, the, the, the cyber world, I think, is where you're going to see a lot of this taking place uh, almost faster than we're able to perhaps even as, you know, design and build policy toward it, in part because the adversary and threat environment is so uh, heterogeneous. You know, we're not building just to keep out a Chinese uh, hacking entity. Rather, we're looking at all kinds of actors who want to get inside a network and, and, and make trouble potentially. And also to be preparing for those kinds of eventualities, particularly in cyber, again, for wartime, which will be different than peacetime and perhaps even more impactful. So mm-hmm. there's this other element to this latent threat that exists in kind of a great power co- uh, context where, you know, we have to be thinking about how will we be using some of the systems that we're designing for peacetime cyber operations in autonomy, you know, for a, a potentially high intensity conflict uh, or a drawn out one. And then on the on the, the kind of the, the analytical and strategic side, you know, you're 
you're as a consumer already you know, swimming in this pool, right? I mean, the way Facebook's algorithms, uh, you know, scrape information, much of it quite personal, uh, the way they are pushing into the next level of autonomy, mm-hmm. uh, again, which is a very commercially driven pursuit, right? I mean, they want to sell ads off your personal information. Right. Uh, their latest F8 conference, you know, was all about essentially their investments and kind of outlook on using autonomy, AI for that matter. Yeah. That's kind of at an institutional level. There, there's some really interesting thinking going on right now around AI is how much of it can be personalized. Mm-hmm. And, and, and that has a really interesting battlefield context for the military because we often talk about um, the, the AI being at a platform level. You know, can right. uh, an F-35 in two decades control an entire swarm? Or could a you know, carrier battle group essentially have the ships maneuvering controlled by you know, perhaps discrete AIs interacting aboard each ship. Mm-hmm. And then you start distributing that out further in a kind of special operations environment or uh, in, even in a conventional military formation where you know, perhaps each, like in an armor unit, each vehicle has its own AI, which helps it understand threat, which helps it understand opportunity and risk and communicate that back and forth with, with its human occupants. Uh, and so we're, we're really, I think, at the kind of very foot of the mountain climbing to this this kind of larger ascent here that is going to take us to a place where we don't really kind of know, we can't quite see through the clouds, so to speak, to know what's up there. Um, and and the more that, that we are, I think, cognizant of some of the limitations. When when we explored autonomy in a, in a science fiction uh, sense through Ghost Fleet, you know, mm-hmm. we really wanted to think through the good and the bad. And so one of the ways we did this was we portrayed uh, the U.S. Navy having uh, a system we called Athena, uh, which was essentially like an autonomous threat-enhanced network uh, system that would allow, allow a, a, a ship to fight a threat without human intervention because the speed of speed of conflict was getting so fast. But the problem was it didn't work in, in a kind of dense environment like if you were under attack in a port right. or the human trust level was there. Yet by the end of the book, where we've gone through a major conflict in the Pacific, we have a you know a boneyard F-15 fighting alongside, you know, essentially a, an unmanned flying wing, right? Something kind of like a UCAS. Right. And, and and that ability to understand, what does that pilot think about having that robot as his wingman? Can a pilot trust that that wingman will, you know, watch his back? Can he trust that wingman, you know, imperil his own life and right. kind of get in the way of getting the mission done? And, uh, and, and I felt like that was an important arc in understanding how you will relate to autonomy in peacetime, and how that will evolve during conflict. Because conflict, uh, you know, historically has accelerated all kinds of technological adoption and throughput uh, in ways that, that other environments, you know, peacetime environments can't. You know, ethical and have different, you know, values and weights, you know, in wartime. And, and uh, that's going to be something I think, I think the more we talk about today when we're not facing these kind of bigger risks, the, the better off we're going to be when, when it comes to a, a, a conflict in the future. Yeah, that brings up a couple good points. The first one I kind of want to hit on is is what you talked about, and I think it it's the progression from integrating autonomous systems and how that how that evolves from just integration and application of autonomous systems to a construct where people are simply managing autonomous systems to a construct where we as we become overseers of autonomous systems that are doing everything sort of unto themselves. Does that sort of seem like what the the 
general thinking is on the progression where we're going to be integrating systems, then managing, then overseeing? Or is there a different understanding about how we're going to use these systems in the long term? I, I, I think that's the linear progression. But I think there's almost a third outcome, which is the the machine, to some extent, overseeing us. And I, I don't mean that, you know, we're manacled and, you know, going to the thorium mine to pull out some kind of, you know, element that powers the the AI overlord, but right. rather that, you know, there are, there are going to be these kind of analytical calls that we're going to, going to have to make right. that are going to be so supported by a, you know, machine learning system, particularly the ones that are, you know, learning as we go along, you know, any organization in the military, you know, one of its biggest challenges, how do you, how do you learn and how do you pass that information along? Yeah. And in a human level, we're getting better and better at that, but we still face challenges. But imagine that could be augmented with machine learning you know, process that much of those lessons learned in a, particularly in a global environment, uh, were suddenly able to be distributed, populated, you know, to the robotic systems or, you know, integrated man machine teams so that you could see something on one part of the world, uh, whether it was a new waveform and how that was being used to, to hack your, uh, your, or your, your network and, and, you know, wield that same, uh, waveform all the way on the other side of the world against an adversary that hadn't a defense had developed a defense against it. Mm-hmm. So there's some interesting permutations about kind of how we how we share information and you know that lessons learned becomes real time or almost predictive uh, as well. There's a really important thing to think about too in the integration of man machine teams and how we will learn from from the you know autonomous you know environments the AI systems that will be integrated into you know, weapon systems and, and military operations in, in that, you know, does a system have to give us bad advice too, so that we as humans can still choose? I mean, I've been thinking a lot about this question that it's a bit like having, you know, the, the you know, the devil on one shoulder and the angel on the other, so mm-hmm. to speak, that, um, you know, to, to kind of really go to this essence of free will and the kind of authority that, you know, in an open society in a Western society like ours, we want to have about life and death decisions. You know, do we need to be presented with bad options by the machine as well to truly make the right call. And there's two reasons for that. One is that the kind of traditional, you know, values uh, aspect. The other is, you know, the machine learns as well. Mm-hmm. And if the machine doesn't understand what a bad option or bad decision uh, is or what consequences are, it won't learn. And that's going to be a really fascinating thing to develop too. And that's a somewhat crude way, I think, to think about it. But it is an element of this kind of larger ch- choice about how we relate to the, the machine genes that we're going to be interfacing with, particularly in a, in a military, if not a high-speed kind of combat environment. Well, I mean, I, I think that's I think that's an important thing to highlight, though, and it kind of, in a way, blends with the other question I was going to ask, which is, you know, as, as machines, especially in the analytical sense that you're talking about, become more advanced, do, right now, the differences between us and an analytical machine are, are pretty significant, but the idea that for a machine to make the best possible decisions that they may need to become more like us. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Um, And I think, and I think that's interesting because the question I was going to ask was about sort of the construct of what we envision autonomous machines doing, right? Does a autonomous fighter aircraft have to look like a man, a human piloted fighter aircraft, or could it be, like you said, a swarm of nanorobots. Like, could that accomplish the same mission set as what we would consider 
you know, a fighter aircraft. So it's, it's interesting the blending of those two and, and the merge potentially from different solutions or different looks to the solutions that autonomous mm-hmm. systems present moving towards a more, a more similar solution to what we already have and already are. Yeah. I mean, I, I think one of the, the ways to think about it is, you know, how uh, autonomy and artificial intelligence and uh, artificial general intelligence will not only disrupt the way our adversaries uh, operate, but how disruptive it will be to the armed forces of the United States. And I think this is something we're not quite ready to, to, to deal with, in part because we have a system that does not like to be disrupted. You know, it, Right. likes to have big platforms that are big, well-funded and have congressional support. And suddenly you're facing, you know, a, a technological environment that that status quo approach is a tremendous liability, both, both at the operational, but also the strategic level. Right. You know, a good example would be, you know, the, the, the main battle tank. Uh, you know, is there something that can achieve the same effects of, of, a, main, of a heavy tank like an M1 uh, that looks nothing at all like that? Right. You know, that may look like something that is crossed between a, you know, a dune buggy and a, uh, uh, you know, and a school bus, right? Uh, because of swarm weapon systems, electronic warfare, and uh, the ability to, let's say, employ, uh, you know, long-range strike using these sorts of semi-autonomous, uh, you know, rounds. So suddenly, you know, the the way that the, the Army particularly organizes itself and starts to think about the legacy that armor has played in achieving some really fundamental and important missions in the 20th century, you know, is it time to say we have to be open to a fundamental recasting of those structures? You know, and you're seeing some of that, you know, I think in terms of the adaptability to different environments uh, where, you know, you simply can't employ uh, for, for practical reasons, you know, a tank in, in high altitude mountains in Afghanistan because the roads simply wouldn't support it, for example. Right. Uh, there are, there are pragmatic, you know, adaptations. Uh, the same way the U.S. Navy may find that the lethality in the Pacific is such that that a carrier battle group is not an effective way to project power in wartime anymore. Yeah, uh, in peacetime, it might be fine. So, so these are big challenges, though, to bring into our, our our organizations because they are going to be so fundamentally disruptive to everything from funding to training to identity, and a lot of that is going to be enabled by uh, autonomous systems, by, by the ability at least to be able you know, to, to create new structures, new uh, systems that, that achieve the effect of a you know a 70 ton tank with something that could be a tenth the weight and you know perhaps twice the cost or it could be a quarter mm-hmm. of the cost. Uh, you know those are some of the things that are, will still be, be worked out. To, to get you to um take a stab at the the future a little bit more is that is that something you think is an evolutionary development in our armed forces or is that require sort of a revolutionary change in the way that we understand the systems that we use to conduct combat i think the the way we uh anticipate and appreciate change you know it's not linear uh and but the more you are comfortable with being you know just disrupted or kind of put off into a, uh, a kind of back foot and put it and, and be able to, to be effective in that, in that context. And that doesn't mean just in more time, uh, you know, that you're willing to, uh, I guess, you know, absorb loss. And, and so it's also peacetime. Uh, 
you know, because again, some of these, these, these changes are potentially quite profound. And mm-hmm. so, you know, finding a way to, you know, create an organization either within the army or as part of the greater army that says we are willing to, to level set some of our assumptions about how we accomplish missions. Uh, and we're going to be leveraging these new technologies, which may or may not come when we expect. Right. Uh, I think the, the, one of the most potentially perilous things is to figure that this will be uh, a fairly orderly arrival and that, mm-hmm. and that at an even larger level, it's very risky to assume that we're going to be the ones driving a lot of this technological implementation. Right. There's a very, there's a very good chance that we could find ourselves also sort of the, in the position of the fast follower, as they say, you know, in, in the tech community because of another nation's uh, focus on a certain technology set or a willingness to cast Aside certain legal or ethical or just programmatic, uh, you know, traditions that that you know governed much of the way we thought about you know warfare in the 20th century. Is that potentially true of uh, private industry as well? That we're the fast follower behind something that crops up at a you know Facebook or Google or uh, or wherever wherever else. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the the challenge, or let me say it this way, you know, a lot of the the cutting edge work in the kind of autonomous, uh, you know, domain with artificial intelligence too is, you know, coming from big tech, you know, they spend more on R and D. They don't spend it in the same sort of applied manner that a, you know, DARPA might allocate small amounts of money. But what they're doing though, is recruiting the intellectual capital though, for the, the, the kind of step function changes in technology that, that we are coming to actually expect um, that we're, you know, starting to kind of see and rely on things from smartphones to, again, the interaction of a platform as largely distributed as, as Facebook. Uh, and, and, and kind of a fund, it, those have become fundamental technologies and they're really quite amazing when you step back and think about how powerful they are. The, the, the other piece of that too is that in a military context, much of the civilian technology has immense military applications and it doesn't need to be brought up to mil spec. I mean, mm-hmm. the, the, the way that, that, uh, you know, a few years ago, the, Mumbai attackers were able to leverage a handful of off-the-shelf, uh, you know, systems to achieve incredible strategic effect, you know, through this really audacious and bloody and horrible tactical action. You know, I think is something that we'll be, you know, having to kind of see perhaps more prevalent in the future, not from as, as if that's going to be the replicated model, but, but rather you employ and, and marshal and mobilize, uh, you know, groups of people, which your Facebook or other platforms and I mean, the, you know, in the Mideast and North Africa, we saw how effective simply Twitter could be to galvanize political opposition, to achieve strategic effect that, you know, effect resulted effectively in re- regime change in a number of nations. And that would have been much harder to do in a kind of kinetic context uh, um, and create a great instability as a result, not, not a, not a kind of clean outcome. And I think that, that messiness is, is going to be another byproduct that for all this technology and all the sense it makes, all these ones and zeros, that the human impression of it is going to be something nearly as, as kind of uh, confined, not nearly as kind of clean. And, uh, you know, there will be certain continuities to the human experience around conflict and warfare that aren't going to go away no matter how much technology you, you introduce. Right. That's actually a, a pretty good segue because I was curious. We've talked a lot about the, the U.S. side and our understanding of, of systems and structures and platforms that autonomy will influence um, on the side of other actors, on the side of other nation states, on the side of, 
you know, non-state actors on the side of individual people. How do you, how do you feel that autonomy and the development of autonomous systems are going to influence the way that we interact with those, those blocks? Well, I think one of the really interesting things that we may see is the actual interaction of autonomous systems themselves uh, as an expression of, you know, national policy. Mm. You know, the social media domain is one place where that can happen. Uh, looking at the Ukraine and Crimea, you know, the way that Twitter bots uh, are, are to some extent emblematic of a, of a future where the ability to mobilize, you know, in individuals into groups that are in opposition to, you know, one interest or another, you know, is something something that we've seen autonomy play a role in already. You know, the Kremlin's gotten quite good at uh, its sort of, you know, bot army, so to speak, that mm-hmm. these simple software uh, presences online can can actually, you know, in total have, have some impact, uh, as, as clumsy as some of it is. Some of it is, is not. And, and the idea that you're able suddenly to, you know, be able to think about the zones of conflict and how to shape them without introducing conventional military forces particularly for nations that can't at today uh, compete in a, in a head-on-head military conflict. You know, they're going to be, you know, looking for asymmetric advantages, and autonomy is going to certainly play into that. And again, that could be uh, swarming systems, whether they're dumb systems or, or you know, kind of higher end. But it also will certainly take place in this uh, kind of online domain through the use of these, the, the kind of the bot concept. And, and I think there's something, again, this goes back to the personalization of, of, of artificial intelligence that, you know, I, I, I'm, you know, a layperson, really, I'm not a technologist, but mm-hmm. the, the idea seems pretty clear though, that, that, you know, within, you know, I don't know, two decades, we're going to be at a point where we may each individually have the software computing power to do some of our economic activity that we perform in our world, you know, through an autonomous, you know, entity that, that, that essentially has learned how to kind of act like us. So in my case, that might be a, a bot that helps me write books. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it might follow the outline that I've done and know from the, you know, let's say it's two decades from now, I'll look at the past books I've written. It can help, you know, write, write a book, uh, you know, while I'm working on another book right. or a blog post, uh, to put it simply or a tweet for me, you know, so that there's some really interesting kind of load sharing questions that are going to be, be raised and, and, and kind of really actually start to unpack the very economic basics of, Society and for the military, you know, there's potentially great efficiency, but also again huge disruption. That you know, if you're, for example, you're looking at the, the Department of Defense and thinking about how much could be automated, and that's not necessarily in an industrial line perspective, but in a software perspective. Mm-hmm. Well, that kind of brings me to what what I consider the most important question, and I will take the the Luddite view of this. I am an infantry captain. Will I be obsolete in the near future? Sure, sure. I don't feel that we're at a point where we can we can say that the human uh, in a in a ground force you know context is going to become obsolete. That if if machines are ultimately extensions and expressions of who we are, and then it really goes back to needing to influence and relate to you know the humans who are on the other side of of, of those machines. And, and and the reality is that this technology is not going to be evenly distributed that you may see in Shanghai or San Francisco levels of autonomy that have nothing to do with what you may find in uh, you know, other parts of the world mm-hmm. where, you know, an infantry captain may be serving, may be deployed. So, so I would say 
that the, the, the risk of being made obsolete is lower than most people think in part because it goes back to the very essence of conflict, which is a human, a human uh, sort of expression. I, I do think, though, that the role that, a, you know, that an infantry captain plays in a future conflict will be fundamentally changed by autonomy, but that doesn't mean that that, that, that officer becomes obsolete. Uh, it may be that the unit you command, if you're a company commander, may include some systems that are autonomous. Mm-hmm. They may you know, walk alongside your soldiers. They may fly overhead. They may, uh, they may be in the cloud. Uh, so you may be managing alongside, you know, you're worrying about a, a private and, and, and kind of what's going on with them and their, and their, you know, off base life, you know, when you're back, mm-hmm. back home, example, after a deployment. At the same time, you're worrying about your, is your AI, you know, patched and, is it ready for to roll out again when you when you deploy? You know, and it will be ready on a fast enough cycle. So there's going to be some elements there that will be familiar, and others that will be incredibly uncanny and bizarre. Uh, but at the center of all that, I still believe that that the military officer is is going to be a central player. One more question, because I think I buried sure. it a little bit in another question, and it goes back to the analytical piece you were talking about, um, and it was the the progression of an analytical AI needing to be more human or or to be able to make mistakes in order to learn what a good solution is or a bad solution is is that where where we sort of think we're we're headed where eventually there be there will be a time where people and the AIs that we have developed are are I guess partners in in a decision making process is that kind of what the hope is, is that what we're working towards? And is that what people, people really want yeah. out of their AI? The idea of partnership is a, is a good way to think about um, <clears throat> one potential future for, you know, an artificial intelligence and human relationship in part because, you know, we want to, I think, continue the narrative that, you know, the, the machine is, is our, you know, the calculator doesn't control us, so to speak. Right. Um, you know, we, we have so much data now uh, available to us and, and we're going to have even more as the, uh, you know, Internet of Things to, takes off even further. That simply managing and sifting through and kind of yielding uh, all that in- information is going to be be greater than really what any one person can 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 handle. And so that is again also part of where the where the machine be partner uh, to help us see patterns, to help us identify elements. I, I do think though that we have been through this this cycle uh, and. It is different than it was during Robert McNamara's time during the Vietnam War, but mm-hmm. you know we have really tried to objectify something as subjective as as, as war, right? And uh, to to make objective, I should say, not objectify. And and that you know lesson, I think, is that there are going to be aspects of this this AI evolution, if not revolution, that I think we will get wrong. That we will, will you know lean too far on a machine at one point, or maybe. Not involved enough, uh, and we have to be resilient. Hopefully, enough that we're able to to do that. Especially if we are going to make it a partnership, in the sense that you know we have a defined sense of where we how we want to use technology, and that'll help us at least build technology that best serves that purpose, rather than something that uh, is a compromise that has potentially very dangerous uh, you know, kind of permutations. Mm-hmm. But it it still ends up whether we you know whether we like it or not it ends up being an inevitability that we are going to have to use autonomous systems in the future, correct? Correct. Uh, autonomous systems are going to be a part of the 
the civilian world just as they will be in the, in the military world in the future. And in fact, they're already here in, in ways that we don't see. They're not you know as robotic as they will be uh, in the future. But from credit cards to Facebook to Wall Street, AI is already at work and it's part of our kind of larger society in, in fairly profound ways. And I think that as, as you know, individual humans, how we perceive that, of course, is important. If you were an AI, you would know that this was going on, perhaps. But until you see a, a, a car, a driverless car, you know, come pick you up that you've called in your smartphone, or mm-hmm. perhaps you fly cross country on a, on, a, on a jetliner that only has uh, a pilot on it. It doesn't even have a co-pilot anymore because yep. the aircraft is effectively operated by uh, by an AI. Until you really start to touch and, and feel some of that, I think we're gonna we're gonna still be a little bit lagging in our appreciation of how how, how far things have already progressed. Great. The last question I'll ask then is, <clears throat> in the in the interest of hitting on things that cadets and and junior officers out in the force now need to know, what sort of is the biggest takeaway in the I would say in the near term uh, in regards to autonomous systems? I think one of the the most important near term uh, facets of autonomy is to never lose sight of the human aspect of conflict, that for all the technology that will be talked about, that will be introduced, that fundamentally, you know, war is still a, a human experience. With that, though, uh, is an appreciation that that human experience will ch- change along with technology. Mm-hmm. And the more that cadets, soldiers can become familiar with some of these kind of larger concepts and to see how technology is already changing the way we interact with one another in the civilian world, I think will help them be more effective of their mission uh, in, in uniform. August Cole, I appreciate the conversation. Thank you so much for taking the time. If you'd like to find additional research, op-eds, and other original ideas from the Modern War Institute, please visit the War Council blog at mwi.usma.edu or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You can find new episodes of the Modern War Institute podcast on iTunes and Stitcher. For the Modern War Institute, I'm Captain Jake Moraldi. I hope you'll join us next time for more in-depth discussions on war, policy, and leadership.